0: My name is Johanna Manegren Selimovic. Uh, I'm an associate researcher at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. I'm also a senior lecturer at Södertörn University. Um, And welcome to all the participants who will be part of the discussions. Um, Thank you so much for traveling here. I can't wait to listen to these discussions. Also, thank you so much to the audience who made it here in the cold. Um, And also, of course, I want to thank uh, Riksbankens Jubileumsfond, who is the funder, uh, not only of this conference, but also of the research project that's actually this conference ends. And this is a research project that I have been working in and also uh, four other colleagues. You will very soon meet three of them, the fourth one stephanie kapler is not here Um, one reason being that she has just had a little baby so this project has been productive in many ways we've actually produced three babies and also some great research um and we are all peace and conflict scholars so we approach this topic of memory from this experience of working in societies that have suffered, who come with a painful past, and sometimes have established some kind of peace, Sometimes maybe not even a peace, but this kind of in between war and peace. In all of these cases, we have really felt that the need to study memory is really, really strong. But it's not that easy. How can we as scholars approach the topic of how memory and what happened in the past, how that influences the politics of today? And so in this research project, we've looked at several uh, conflict affected societies, uh, Bosnia, Cambodia, Rwanda, South Africa, and Cyprus, um, and tried to answer this question. Um, But we also come to the conclusion that it's not only from an academic perspective that's important to think about and challenge these topics around peace and conflict. There are also people working as curators in the museum world who have a lot to say about this, who have thought a lot about this. There are also people in civil society who work in various capacities with aspects to do with power, politics and memory and peace. And there are also artists who have really challenged this topic of how to deal with painful memories. Uh, and we, during this conference, there are people from all of these realms coming together to discuss. So I am once again just really happy that we would have this opportunity. And with this, I will hand over to Jonas, who will introduce the first panel, which is actually then the three other three researchers in this project um, and they will talk about some of the findings and some of the way we have been thinking and working with this topic and if you find it interesting i'm also happy to say that our research will be published next year in the form of a book at manchester university press so welcome again thank you oh i have one of those
1: headsets um, Okay. Uh <clears throat> OK, so welcome to the first round table, even though it's two square tables, but uh, still uh, <laughs> we're going to have these interesting and uh, enlightening discussions here, hopefully uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, my name is Jonas Lövenberg. Uh, usually I'm the uh, editor and host of the podcast that I make for the Swedish Institute of International Affairs It's called Utblick have to listen. It's in Swedish, but you should. Uh, but today I'm here to moderate this, these uh, conversations. Uh, I also have to share with you the first time I came in contact with this topic was actually when I did an episode of the podcast together with Johanna. And uh, since then we did an episode on, on monuments. It's almost two years ago. And my view on monuments and even my own city has changed in a way. From that, I see more things. So I hope if you're new to this topic, you will have the same good experience from this. So uh, to start this off, uh, this is the panel uh, f- f- from this research project, peace and the politics of memory. Annika uh, Björkdahl, please come up. <laughs> you, I well, think we can applaud them when everybody's here. Yes. Uh, hey, uh, she's professor of politics. Uh, Political science at Lund University, her current research focuses on peace building and memory politics, including transnational memory and cultural heritage of war, as well as women's troubling testimonies of war. Yes, and my next panelist is Susanne Buckley Sestel, Sorry if I missed your last name. <laughs> Come up here. And uh, professor of peace and conflict studies and executive director of the center of conflict studies at the Phillips University in Marburg. Her main interest lies in transnational uh, justice, memory, gender, space and post-colonialism. They have long titles these people but they know a lot. (laughs) Yes, (coughs) lost. Uh, Timothy Williams, please come up. Big hand for Timothy. And uh, he's a junior professor uh, uh, of insecurity and social order at the University of Bundeswehr Munich in Germany. We're also is the chairman of the interdisciplinary research center R.I.S.K. Risk. I have to read this from the card. I'm sorry, there's so long. He's co-editor in chief of SEFCO uh, studies in peace and conflict and vice president of the international association of genocide scholars. And now one big applause for all of them. Thank you. OK. So. Um, The title of this is uh, Spaces of Peace and Conflict Not Set in Stone, The Restless Role of Monuments, Museums and Memorials. Uh, Yes. Uh, I also have to say if everything goes as planned, it will be some time for you in the audience to answer questions, uh, or to to ask questions. Hopefully they will ask them. (laughs) Okay. So we have to start uh, like this, as I always do when I have a panel or do the podcast, uh, to understand uh, uh, the definition of what we're talking about. So what is memory politics, Sonne? Oh, you um, just, well, I can move it for you. Yeah, I've just yeah. moved it back. Okay. Can you hear her? Yes. Thank you,
2: thanks very much for welcoming us. It's great to be here. Um, Uh, and to talk about our research project. So what is memory politics? It's obviously um, absolutely useful to start with a definition in order to kind of adjust people's expectations. And when I think of memory in particular, one quote that...
1: Okay. Is that better? Yes.
2: When I think of memory politics, um, one quotation that comes to my mind is by one of um, a German philosopher called Walter Benjamin. (laughs) And he said um, the work of uh, memory collapses time. And what he means by this is that uh, when we think normally of a kind of linear procession of time, of temporality, we have past, present, and future. If you approach something, um, in our case, peace and conflict, from the perspective of memory, you collapse time because you move what happened in the past to the present. So when we think of memory, we think about how we recall the past um, and bring it to the present. Um, and kind of wonder about the impact it has on the present but also on the future. And the future we are interested in, um, in our project is the future of peace and the quality of peace. So what we are asking is to what extent is the the recollection of the violent past that takes place in the present, to what extent leads that to some uh, qualitatively rich peace or maybe a shallow peace. So this is kind of the research question with which we approach. Um, the project. So if you look at the uh, post-conflict society, um, there's always a lot of competition about how the past can be remembered. Different actors and agents in memory politics, they struggle about the interpretation of the past. And this renders the interpretation, the memory, political. So here, remembrance, commemoration, memory, is used for political purposes. Um, in the present, but also in the future with you to what direction this country can potentially move to. And with political, I don't mean it in a kind of cynical way um, or in a purely power political way by governments. Um, If, for instance, um, a survivor organization is fighting for some form of recognition, acknowledgement, and dignity in the present, then this is also a political endeavor. So that renders memory politics political.
1: do you guys have something else to add to that? Yeah. Yes.
3: Well, I think um, I mean Susanna explained it really well, uh, but I think there is this really interesting aspect of power and the power struggle that is involved in memory politics, and it's about power of the over the past, it's power in the present, and power over the future, and. It's also about legitimacy, that this power is legitimate. Because if you can anchor it in the past and in certain interpretations of the past, that gives you legitimacy to exercise power in the present and also to sort of project that power into the future. And I think that is an interesting dimension that we have also struggled with trying to incorporate in our understanding of memory politics.
1: do you have, Tim, please? I'll
4: say it
3: I say it. Yeah, All right. <laughs> okay, um, uh,
1: another definition that we will hear in this uh, is uh, transnational memory. Annika, can you explain this for us shortly? Say something about it.
3: Well, I thought that was a separate question, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy to say something about that. Um, well, one of the things about transnational memory is how how we think about memory as dislocated from the place where it has been experienced and it's sort of being uploaded into a transnational memory space, which is in relation to these global discourses, for example, the global discourses of uh, never again recalling the Holocaust, for example. so when we talk about transnational memory, this is, national, this is memory that sort of crosses national or state boundaries. And they sort of become part of a larger transnational memory space, which, I mean, the, the construction of this memory space is basically done through uh, a professionalization and a commercialization of memory in the sense that uh, professional agents, they construct memorial sites that look similar in in Srebrenica as they may do in other places around the world. So there is a mimicking of, of how memorials are constructed and how to commemorate certain types of event like genocide or other types of war traumas. And that is um, a way of dislocating or globalizing um, Memories that used to be pinned to a particular place, and they are no longer and that is an interesting way of thinking about memory as not necessarily being you know pinned to a place but more fluid or fleeting and um, open to interpretation and how they sort of speak to a global audience much more now than it used to do before I think so that's also a little bit related to uh, the memory politics that it has uh, that it becomes much more a global memory politics today
4: hmm. Yes, yes uh, oh, uh, Tim first and <laughs> um, me- one thing that I would maybe add is that it- while there is this transnationalization and um, a construction of global memory to a certain degree, the meanings that these things can have can differ quite strongly and are subject to different types of politics in, or in different memory scapes and so even the, the the idea of what the Holocaust means and to remember it can be used in different countries, uh, for instance also for generating political capital so by uh, invoking memory of the Holocaust uh, in um, in, uh, in other uh, contexts, for instance, uh, in, in genocide uh, memorials, having a comparative exhibition uh, as we see, for instance, in um, Kigali genocide um, memorial, we see that um, there's this, e- this expectation of comparison and so it can be used politically to distance or to, to, to try and create some kinds of similarities.
1: Sanna, did you want to say something yeah, about this? And,
2: um, this? All of this is highly relevant for studying memory politics in the context of uh, war and peace, and it was also for our project, because um, the, the kind of transnational field of memory makes memory as a way of dealing with the past important. Um, we all assume that we've always considered memory in some aspect or another. You know, Coming from Germany, remembering the Holocaust has been there since, well, not quite the Holocaust, but for a long time. But if you really look at kind of the dimension on the kind of um, the speed discussions around memory have taken on, this is only really since the 90s. Huh. So whilst now we take it for granted, the so-called memory boom um, is is a um, maybe for some people not exactly recent uh, because 90s is also some time ago. Uh, but the fact that everybody now thinks you have to commemorate um, violent atrocities, you have to erect a memorial, you have to build a. Uh, um, um, uh, a centre, a Holocaust centre or a genocide centre, this is a more recent development and with that development also comes a, a transnational group and crowd of norm entrepreneurs who move these discussions forward often in the field of transitional justice where they say um, after violent conflict they visit countries and help them to establish particular memory structures um, and help them to design museums and that links back to what Annika said that there's also some form of homo of various forms of how the real remembrance is supposed to look like in memorials and institutions
1: all right so with this as a uh, start i have to ask you guys why did you decide to study memory politics uh, as peace scholars tim
4: yeah, I think. I mean, I hope from what we've been saying so far, it's quite clear that it's memory politics is really essential to understanding uh, what peace can mean, how peace can be successful in conflict-affected um, societies. Um, this long shadow of the past, of it, that violence doesn't stop um, in its meaning when weapons are put down, um, but that the, the individual and collective memories um, shape the societies, and so to to understand. Um, a, uh, the, the post-conflict uh, um, uh, sort of genetics of a society, of course we need to understand historically what's happened, but much more important for that to understand the social relations within a country is to understand what that history means and how... Certain parts of that history are selected to um, to be highlighted. Uh, who is remembered in uh, as uh, playing what roles in that history? And so, by highlighting these different things, and that's what memory does. It selects from uh, the rich history that you have what the what events uh, occurred, what actors um, participated in, and what that all means. And it's that meaning making process which really affects. Um, legitimacy today it affects collective identities today, um, and that 's really the foundation for for whether um, groups can live together peacefully, uh, what they recognize in other groups, and how also actions of other groups and other individuals will be interpreted they what uh, uh, what one person says or does is always interpreted. Um, in, the, in the light of pr- previous expectations that we have from that person. And so dis- discussions in society about what has happened in the past and consensuses or conflicts on what the past means are really influential to how groups can um, enter into constructive dialogue or uh, are more likely to have a violent or non-violent conflict. And that will then influence the quality of peace.
3: Annika. Yes, um, I can just add to, to what Tim said here, is that, I mean, as peace callers, we are also interested in war. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and, and, and war, they create these traumatic memories, and in transitions from war to peace, these memories are unsettled, and um, the society is in transition, so everything is sort of in a state of flux. But our research, um, I think, has shown that memory politics is Uh, often becoming a stumbling block in peace processes and to reach a just and durable peace. So memory politics plays a number of different roles in in, uh, peace processes. Uh, And I think it's important to look at it from that perspective as well, because memory making is a very contested process. And in these societies that are transitioning, uh, that are conflict-affected societies, here, you know, the, the memories become such a big issue that it actually works as a hindrance for establishing a just and durable peace. So that is uh, something that we also take into consideration. Susanna,
1: do you, do you want to say something about why you picked this uh, topic to study?
2: Um, I think they...
1: They covered they, it all, okay. Yeah. Maybe
2: just uh, <coughs> one, one synthesis. It, used, it yes. uses also as a diagnostic tool mm-hmm. to okay, understand yeah. how peace and conflict move in societies and kind of...
1: Okay, but so how do you study this? How do you study the effect of memory politics? What, what, what effect it has on peace? Annika?
3: Well, this is of course a, a big challenge to, to try to unpack how memory politics actually have an impact on the quality of peace. Um, but we were bold, i say, and brave. So we took on this challenge to, to try to do that. Uh, and uh, in, in order to do that, we figured that meaning uh, memory making and peacemaking are two very complex processes. Um, so we needed to unpack that while still be able to, to look at them as interacting processes and so forth. So we we sort of adopted this multi-perspective or multi-dimensional perspective on on um, on our framework, and we we identified four very important theoretical building blocks to make up of our make up our theoretical framework that we then use to study our cases. But um, let me just walk you through the, the theoretical framework uh, briefly because we call it sane, which is so much better than calling it insane. <laughs> so so um, we have S, and here we look at sites, uh, memory sites. Uh, and these sites could be anything from memorials to museums to monuments. But focusing on sites help us to sort of show that matter matters in memory politics. It's a way of pinning memory politics to place. So that is sort of how we think about sites. And then we come to, to A as agency. Uh, and it's hard to study memory politics without looking at the key role of agents, the memory entrepreneurs, if, if we like. Uh, and this is about exercising memory politics. And we can think of a number of agents that are active in memory politics. It could be representatives of the state, it could be victim organizations, um, it could be international peace builders. So there are a number of actors that come together with various agendas of memory politics uh, and, and they contribute to you know, memory making uh, and so forth. And then our third building block um, is narratives. And we picked narratives because language is a very powerful tool in, in society in general, but perhaps even more so in conflict-affected societies. And they create discourses and hegemonic discourses, for example. Um, and we can find these narratives of memory, for example, in textbooks in schools, in media reporting. Uh, and, and we see also that certain narratives come to gain a hegemonic position in society. And we can also, if we are careful, we can also detect and see counter narratives that are challenging and contesting these hegemonic narratives. So narratives became very important uh, in in our framework because they are meaning making in a society. And the fourth and final theoretical um, building block that we use in our sane framework Is events and that sort of recognises the the performativity of memory politics, how memory is performed, Um, and it's about the. We focus on events like commemoration events, commemorating um, Independence Day, for example, or um, some war crime. in particular, so it could be parades, or it could be demonstrations, different types of performances where you're performing memories. And that is um, the, the fourth building block. And they come together in what we call mnemonic formations. And these are sort of clusters Around a specific issue that is uh, particularly pertinent in society, and i 've been particularly interested in, in Cyprus, for example, where you have um, or two competing mnemonic formations of nationalism, one in the Turk Cypriotic north and one in the Greek Cypriotic south. So these mnemonic formations are then <coughs> performed, narrated, and expressed through agency um, and, uh, in particular sites, for example so This is how we see and how we use our theoretical framework to to study um, various uh, post-conflict or conflict-affected societies. And I think what is important here is that we look at the interactions of sites, agency, narratives and events, how they come together and how they have impact on each other in a process. But of course, we can also look at them individually, but when they come together, they say something more about society. uh, And from that, we can draw insights into understanding the quality of peace.
1: So this is a way to analyze and look at this, but why is memory politics so important in conflict uh, affected societies, Susanne.
2: Um, I would actually like to continue from where Annika just left yes, off. Yes, um, please do. We, one, one way of showing um, how it is relevant is also by explaining a little bit um, how we went about. So, Annika just explained our same framework, and uh, it's a, like she said, it's a heuristic device. You know, we disentangle um, four components that kind of work together and are closely related together. Um, And we do that in our five case studies um, of which Johanna um, which Johanna explained earlier or mentioned earlier, we had Cyprus, we had Bosnia- Herzegovina, we had Rwanda, we had South Africa and we had Cambodia. And whilst in the course of the project, um, we did various things in our monography, um, we dedicate one chapter to each of these cases and we run through the same analysis quite clinically um, so that we can put them next to each other and then compare them to draw out deeper insights about which we'll hear in a moment as well. So, let me just very, very, very sketchily um, go through two, three of the of the examples. Um, Anika just said that we work with monomic formations, mainly because it's hard to pronounce, <laughs> <laughs> yes. but it also makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and what we've done with the case studies, um, who are very, very well covered in academia, we tried to look at menomic formations that are not so prevalent. Um, So for instance, when it comes to Rwanda, we looked at how the role of the internationals is being commemorated. When we look at um, South Africa, we look at how colonialism, not apartheid, is commemorated. When we look at Cambodia, we look at bones and spirits. Um, Maybe we'll hear a little bit more about that as well in a moment. So let me just briefly start with Rwanda, and this is very sketchy. So we look at the um, kind of key important memorial sites. This would be the Kigali um, Genocide Memorial and the Murambi Memorial. But also we look at a new exhibition in Parliament um, where the ruling party has kind of a showcase of the genocide. We look at uh, what agents, so this is N, uh, sorry, this is S, the sites, right? Then we look at what agents are involved in these, kind of in the construction of memory. Um, So here it's obviously the government, it's civil society organizations, it's civil organizations, but it's also the internationals themselves. We look at N, the narratives, and here, like I said, we are interested in how the internationals are being portrayed. What we found out, which is very, I find very exciting and interesting, but not new to people from Rwanda or work on Rwanda. Um, There is uh, the kind of main narratives when it comes to internationals is that the internationals were actually uh, responsible for the genocide through colonialism, so in many exhibitions you see how, kind of, uh, kind of, it's narrated how colonialism, in particular Belgian colonialism, has introduced racial categories of Hutu, uh, Tutsi, and Twa in the Rwandan society, and hence divided the the society, then also politicized the society, um, which eventually led to the genocide. That's one, and the second is that the internationals failed to stop the genocide because they didn't intervene, even though the violence was very apparent and obvious in front of their eyes. Um, And we look at events and we look at apologies. For instance, Bill Clinton apologized in Rwanda for the failure or kind of the role he was played in that. Um, sense. And then we take these uh, kind of findings maybe I just stick with Rwanda because I was running out of time. (laughs) Um, We take these findings of the four um, case studies and we kind of distract what we learn from them. Um, And there are three aspects that come out and we'll hear about them in a minute, uh, which is about um, plurality, inclusivity and dignity, but I'll leave that to somebody else. Yes,
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, we have uh, quite a few questions to go through here. But okay, so through your systematic study of, uh, of this topic, what, what did you find uh, about the role of memory politics and a just and durable peace, Tim?
4: Okay, so I mean, the project's been going on since I think twenty seventeen. Uh, so we've had lots of outputs uh, on lots of different aspects of this connection. Um, but in the in the monograph that um, we've r- variously referred to. What we've found is that when we we apply the, the same framework and look at these across our five case studies, um, that what a useful way of trying to make sense of um, the type of peace that is being created, um, or different types of peace that are being created um, through uh, through memory politics, <coughs> is to think about. Um, Uh, the the concept of entanglement and and how memories are entangled. And what we mean by this is not um, that a a, a, a hegemonic memory um, exists that dominates all interpretations of the past, but that various memories can exist by different agents and can be expressed and are recognized by each other. And that people can enter into dialogue um, and can uh, allow these memories to not just coexist, but to um, to become entangled with each other. Um, And we argue in uh, in the book uh, that this has three dimensions that Susanna briefly uh, mentioned. Um, The first one is pluralism. Uh, How pluralistic is this entanglement? Um, And here, we particularly focus on um, how many diverse memories and commemoration practices can we see, or how homogenous is uh, is the memory scape. And we see this pluralism um, as, trying to look at how open the political space is, um, how freely can other types of memories, other um, versions of the past enter into this and uh, take on a legitimate um, spot. Uh, And this manifests itself, um, for instance, in sites. So if we look at the the landscape of one of the cases that I'm more familiar with in Rwanda, for instance, we see memory everywhere. We see memorials um, all over the country. But the, 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 the narratives that we see here and the the uh, the the people being commemorated, um, it's, uh, it's 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 standardised. This isn't problematic per se because the the vast majority of those who died in Rwanda were Tutsi at the hands of um, Hutu extremists. Mm, But other forms of victimhood that do exist, for instance, Hutu who were also killed by Hutu extremists for being moderates, um, or um, uh, Hutu who uh, died at the hands of uh, Tutsi in in revenge killings, these uh, memories don't have any material um, manifestations. Um, and they don't have a space where they can legitimately um, be, uh, be spoken out. So here we see a more sort of homogenous um, entanglement. The second category um, that we focus on or that we've found to be significant in how the quality of peace can be um, discussed is, is dignity. Um, and this is, here we talk about how injuries are acknowledged. And this can often be seen as a first step um, towards um, apology um, or even compensation and reparation. Um, uh, One of the uh, uh, the other cases that I work on, Cambodia, um, uh, already Susanna mentioned uh, that the mnemonic formation that we studied there was... uh, uh, the power of the dead. Um, uh, in both Cambodia and Rwanda, for instance, um, skulls and bones are preserved in memorials. And the question is, what does, this, uh, what does this mean to the people whose skulls and bones they are? But also, much more importantly, for understanding peace uh, in, and the quality of peace in these conflict-affected societies is, what does it mean to the other people? So in Cambodia, for instance, uh, it's they, uh, the majority of the population adheres to Theravada Buddhism, which stipulates that um, the deceased should be uh, cremated to release the spirits for rebirth. and So the fact that the bones are kept as evidence um, of, the, of the horrific past as part of this uh, politics of memory is seen as quite in- undignified, and it's quite problematic to a lot of uh, the, uh, the survivors. And the third um, category um, is inclusivity. How inclusive um, are these memories? So it's um, it, it, here we think about categories such as ethnicity, um, religion, age, and gender, and all the different um, uh, intersectional categories that can exist in terms of memories. Um, and it's not so it's not just about the fact that there can be multiple memories, but how do they? Get recognized? Um, Are alternative interpretations of the past existing in parallel or do they engage with each other? Is there a dialogue um, there? Um, And here, particularly by looking at sites, agents, narratives, and events, we see, um, or we try to see how. Um, how these various different narratives can, for instance, engage with each other, how agents do speak or don't speak to each other. Um, And in Bosnia and Cyprus, as two of our other cases, for instance, There is pluralist memory. There are multiple versions of the past, which are dominant and uh, can be seen quite um, uh, vehemently. And there are material manifestations, but they're completely in parallel with each other. They don't interact with each other. Um, And this gives a a very uh, difficult uh, task for talking about um, peace in this context. Um, But there are moments where There are interactions in these cases, for instance, as well. For instance, through the bicommunal uh, movement in Cyprus where this dialogue does emerge, and a different quality of peace can emerge within those specific settings. Um, Yes, so uh, we could probably go on for a long time (laughs) talking about these categories, but that's a sort of a a broad overview of uh, what we try to argue um, through our cases.
3: Annika. Just briefly picking up on, on what you said here about, about Cyprus and the plurality of memory. Uh, and I think it's interesting because if we look at how memory making is connected to peacemaking, we can see that you know uh, memories that are not entangled but sort of disentangled from each other, they tend to create pieces in, in plural. So one could say, for example, in, in Cyprus, you have one piece in the north and one piece in the south. So we can talk about peace not as a singular universal concept, but rather as a, a plural understanding of, of pieces. Right? So I think that is also one of the things that we came, came to understand through our work, that you know, peace is not an abstract notion, uh, but it can actually be a more everyday notion. And, and in that sense, we think about peace in plural. Susanna.
2: Yeah, a, um, a good example in that regard is also South Africa. Unfortunately, Steph Kepler can't here um, to present her findings. But in South Africa, we see also that there are different... Um, memory clusters standing next to each other that don't relate when it comes to um, remembering colonialism. So there's the Afrikaans um, kind of remembrance through the Fortracker monument, for instance, of colonialism. But then there's also the Freedom Park and the kind of Rainbow Nation, a more ANC-led narrative um, and kind of memorials that emerge from that. And they then are also not connected with each other. So they're not, they're not entangled, they stand parallel to each other. They're not inclusive um, in that sense. Um, and I think in South Africa then, um, but maybe also in Cyprus, um, there's a big question around justice then, you know, um, because they don't just stand next to each other. There's also a power symmetry between the entrepreneurs of memory in a, in a certain way and kind of injustices from the past.
1: So it seems like you have some scenarios where there uh, some some troubling scenarios here. So is it Can you say there's good and bad memory politics?
2: Mm. It's an interesting question. Uh, I think all of our case studies have shown the limitation or more the problems around memory politics. So uh, maybe those five, to various degrees, right? Um, If you compare Cyprus to Rwanda, they're very, very different contexts. And is the comparison possible in in terms of its outcome at all? Or South Africa to Cambodia, so... um, but uh, I think then we would have to look at countries that have a longer legacy of me- remembering. And then I think of my own country, Germany, where there's been there's a lot of commemoration, and remembrance of the Holocaust and the Shoah. But that doesn't mean that other. Forms of violence are all forms of violence perpetuated by the German state are included. And something that's only recently coming up, or only in the last ten years, is um, kind of Germany's responsibility for its former colonies, in particular um, Namibia, but also um, Tanzania. And uh, so there is. somehow when you think of memory, kind of open a can of worms and there will be always something else to come up and you dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, that doesn't mean that this leads to an instable society in a sense, I'm not questioning um, Germany, the, the continuity of Germany here, but nevertheless it brings up conflicts with other um, actors engaged in that um, and that's maybe also important and relevant because it keeps communication going and conversation going.
1: Yes, um, I think my question is more like: Can memory polit- politics be used to, to do bad things?
2: Oh yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, there, I think we will hear quite a few examples over the course of the of the conference where memory is being um, instigated, and instrumentalized to incite violence and hatred, yeah. um, and there are many examples for that. I have a, a favorite example where artists try to. Uh, do the opposite um, and that's, uh, I don't know whether people know that, maybe those from the former Yugoslav countries uh, in uh, Mostar there was a Bruce Lee figure made by two, I think, American artists, so what they did is they walked around Moscow, a deeply divided city and asked people before the war um, in the 90s, what kept them together? What were they doing with their neighbors from different ethnic groups? And they were like, hmm, oh, watching Bruce Lee movies. <laughs> so they created this, this statue of Bruce Lee as a symbol of reconciliation and unity. Yep. Um, it was vandalized and I think it just doesn't exist anymore. But there was there was the opposite effort to yep. provide something
1: inclusive. I see. Okay, man, so, uh, so, so what is the biggest
4: challenge to study this topic? Tim? Uh, I mean, uh, as in any research project, there are lots, <laughs> lots of different challenges that we face. Um, maybe I'll, f- I'll focus on two. I mean, methodologically, when we look at memory and when we're trying to look at more Pluralistic and inclusive um, types of memory, uh, and their counterparts, where there are more hegemonic memory structures, the problem can be that we don't necessarily always hear the whispers in the dark, the silences, and it's it's methodologically much more difficult to listen for the things which. Can't hear and see the things that we can't see, even if they do actually exist above, uh, uh, slightly below the surface. And so, uh, for for anyone engaging uh, in these pro- these kinds of projects, it's it's sort of it takes a, a very um, good knowledge of the case. Collaborations with, with other researchers and so on and so forth to try and tease out the more subtle dynamics. I think that's one of the um, sort of methodological challenges um, uh, in that. From a more practical perspective, I think one of the challenges is that memory is political, so research on memory is also political. And looking into what memory politics means for peace um, is. In some contexts, quite a politically challenging thing to do, because when a government uh, derives its legitimacy strongly through the past, um, it, for instance, in 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 Rwanda, uh, where the government came to power by ending the genocide, and that's that's. Uh, a great feat and that's really important. It's also the cornerstone of their legitimacy for power today and so any type of research which could criticise that or which they could anticipate might criticise that um, can be more strongly policed. Uh, The same is also the case uh, for Indonesia, another case in which I've done research where um, researchers are also imprisoned uh, for working on, uh, on... anything to do with 1965 is the, the year of the genocide. And so there are, because it's so political and, the, and the, the, the official narratives should not be undermined. And so I think that's, that's a, it's a practical but quite important challenge to sort of keep in mind when thinking about the past that we as researchers are also part of this, uh, this, this process of negotiation and what we publish, what we say is heard and thus um, can be seen as politically contentious.
1: Annika, do you have any challenges you want to share?
3: I can, I can just add uh, or agree with Tim yeah. that we, we as researchers, I mean, we have uh, been talking about this within the project and th- <laughs> thought about our own positionality here because we contribute to memory making <laughs> through our publications, but we are also sort of these transnational agents that we go and we do the fieldwork, and then we go back. So we are carriers of memories. So we talk about traveling memories, but we, we as researchers, we are also part of this as carrying other people's memories and, and we function sort of as a megaphone and you know, speak to or share these memories of others to, the, to a global audience. And in that sense, I think we, we play a role and we have to be aware of that role that we play as researchers. Um, and that is a challenge, I think.
1: Do you want to say something, Sana?
2: Yeah. Um, Annika's point, I think, is a very <coughs> important one. And, but positionality also has another aspect, which is um, you know, the, the limit of our understanding of memory discourses. I mean, we can read statements, we can look at pictures and images, but we can always obviously only interpret them based mm-hmm. on where we come from and our, what we read into them based okay. on our kind of um, origin, uh, where we come from, in terms of the origin, age, um, gender, and so on. So this is also a limit um, to the research. And then, like with all research, um, when you uh, research on countries other than your own, and even including your own, um, you're always alien to the area you work in. Even ethnographic research has its limits. And we obviously have to be very aware of the fact that data collection has limits in that regard.
1: Okay, um, I also have to ask, uh, have, by studying memory politics, have your view on the world changed in any way, Annika?
3: Oh, this is a, a question that I find really <laughs> difficult to address. Yes, sure. Has my... Uh, my Maybe not. My, my, my way know. of looking at the world changed? Um, well, I think the... the I mean, I think Sweden is a very progressive society that we tend to look to the future, right, in many, many sense. We're not a very backward-looking country. And we don't think so much about the past. Uh, and Or at least that's how I understood it uh, growing up in, in Sweden. Uh, but now I realize that in Sweden, as well as in many other countries, the past is actually very present mm. in the present. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that is... Uh, so maybe not the world, but I have a different understanding of time mm-hmm. after studying memory politics, um, that I realized that, you know th- the past is so it's not dictating the present and the future, but it definitely has a very important impact on the present and the future. So in that sense, my way of time has changed, or my understanding of time has changed. And also, I think, uh, perhaps my understanding of, of space as you become much more engaged with um, the past of other places through these transnational memory spaces and how memory speaks to this global audience, you yourself sort of come to feel the past in a different way, not your own past, but other people's pasts. Uh, in a way that I think is really, um, it creates, hopefully, among many of us, empathy and and a connection to other people's pasts and your own past. So I think that is something that has changed for me doing this research project.
1: Interesting. Yes, Uh, Susanna? Um, yes. Sorry, we're probably pressing for
2: time. Nothing. But I'm um, just one of my pet projects in the course of our wider project here was to look at the aesthetics of memorials. And mm-hmm. I think that has really changed my attitude to memorials because I've read a lot and then tried to do it myself about how memorials uh, try to work on us effectively rather than cognitively. So it's about what we feel when we are in a memorial. And there is a newer. Um, uh, tendency of fashion in memori- memorial culture that works a lot with effect and emotions, and once you ha- thought about this, um, it's hard to go to a memorial without wondering. So how do I feel? You know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what does it do to me physically? You know, and what does it tell me? What What do they want to tell me when they want me to feel claustrophobic? Uh, what <coughs> does it actually mean? So kind of to try to. F- um, Meet the world and appreciate the world uh, in a different way, beyond cognitive knowledge, but also with uh, bodily, physical experience. And that's something I've learned. And that you can take that to the forest or to anywhere. <laughs>
1: it's really good. Okay, but so have memory politics and its manifestations, say in memorials and so on. Have have it changed over time? Can we see trends?
2: Yes, um, there was a, a kind of. There, there's a form of a style of memorial we're all familiar with, like where it's the hero, maybe on a horse, kind of in on a pedestal with solid materials, kind of there to stand the test of time. Um, and that, that's, I'm sure there are quite a few in Sweden, there's certainly many in, in Germany and all over the world that kind of adhere to an older style of memorials, um, but they are still being erected um, and, and constructed. Um, and then there, in, at least in Germany, and that had one Worldwide repercussions. There was a break with that, um, based on the horrors of the of the Holocaust, where um, memory architects and artists wanted to show that there is no certainty, like something that's put into marble and stone. Um, life is is fractured. Um, it's broken. Um, Also, Ardona would say, there is no art after Auschwitz, Um, and so we have a lot of uh, memorials around the time that deal, kind of, uh, address these fractured past, and that's kind of, uh, for instance, broken stones. um, You find there's a few places here in in Stockholm as well, we saw where there are kind of fractured pieces of something lying on the ground um, that kind of make you think about the atrocities that, and feel the atrocity that happened and that's moved um, to a what i call more affirmative memorial style where this kind of uh, form of memorials that want you to engage with them is still being done but it's the message it's basically you have to remember and we have to move towards peace so there's a very strong peace message involved in that
1: I know that uh, some of you, or Annick at least, (laughs) have have looked at this topic from a a gender perspective. Can you say something about that?
3: Um, Yes, um, I think it it comes from an interest in um, the, the connection between memory politics and power. Because if you think about power, you also can think about gender hierarchies. And, and if you put on your gender glasses, you, are more, you can more easily observe and study silences, voids, and the other side of memory making, and that is forgetting, <laughs> uh, not remembering. And I think uh, in many conflict-affected societies, uh, there is a forgetting of certain war crimes. For example, uh, conflict-related sexual violence, which is a, a crime shrouded in silences. And there is rarely acknowledgement. Uh, you rarely have any memorials for that. Uh, and so that is a big silence in the memory making process. Uh, and I think this creates a gendered memory scape in general. Uh, but if we are able to to look at that memory scape, we can also see those women organizations that are mobilizing memory. They are mobilizing memory to get um, legitimacy, to Um, get acknowledgement, uh, but also for um, calls for compensation, economic compensation, some kind of reparation. And it could be acknowledgement, it could be for, you know, apology or something like that. But there are agents that work in the margins that try to bring forward these type of memories that are you know, many women have experienced war in, in these terms, right? And those memories should be acknowledged as well. So I think there is this power dimension that we can more easily see if we look at memory politics from, from a gender perspective. Uh, and I think when it comes to that, I think it's important to recognize that women often are victims uh, in, in viol- of violence in wartime. But also that victimhood is a very powerful platform for agency and for you know making political and moral claims. So in that sense, you know, if we can transform victims to be from being passive to active, there is uh, important work that can be done by women organizations in 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 memory politics.
1: <clears throat> okay, um, if we look forward then. Uh, how will monuments and memory politics be used in the future? I don't know, uh, maybe Annika? <laughs> well,
3: I can start with memory politics and yeah. take over yeah. m- or sure. our memories. Um, well, I think uh, we talked a little bit about the globalization of memory politics in terms of creating these transnational memory spaces and so forth and the traveling memories. But I think there is another process just like globalization that is impacting on memory politics, and I think that is the digitalization, how memory work is played out in the digital space. And I think we have the expert here, (laughs) Orly Freeman, uh, who is working on on digital memory. And, And I think for the digital space in a sense of how I understand it at least, opens up for a plurality of memory agents that can you know, engage in memory activism, memory advocacy, uh, in a, perhaps more freely than in, in other spaces. But of course, taking into consideration that the digital space can also be um, manipulated and so forth, but this is a new space that is opening up. And the question is, to what extent does that expand the agency of, of memory entrepreneurs uh, and what kind of space will this be eventually? So I think the digitalization of memory politics is interesting to follow, and I think that will be a new trend. We already see it, but I think this
1: is... Uh, I just have a question. Isn't it easy to manipulate that kind of memories that are digital?
3: I think you can create... It's harder to see what is truth, not necessarily that there is one truth. Sure. But. It opens up for many agents to come forward and, and share their interpretations of the past, which can be a lot of competing interpretations and competing memories. And I think for for those studying it, it's a matter of you know trying to understand various counter narratives and counter memories. Um, but you can hear many more voices, I think.
1: Tim.
4: Yeah, I think I mean it, it, this this turn towards the digital is absolutely fascinating, and I think it interlaces with all processes of digitalization, and this, the fact that there are more voices is, for, in terms of the the heuristic for peace that we were thinking about. It heightens the pluralism, but the inclusivity and the hostility that we see in, um, in digital memory making, um, it very much mirrors all the other sort of digital processes we say where language online can be much less inclusive, it can be much more, um, uh, it, it can be used for much more uh, heated debate, but at the same time, there are there are, there are artists engaging in creating digital spaces. Um, uh, some of the field work I did in Indonesia this summer, the digital space is the only space where anyone can really put anonymous testimonies and have people hear them, because the rest of the space is closed. Um, and I think what's very interesting is... Um, I th- it, we don 't there are intergenerational differences, and in lots of the countries we 're studying the the violent past only makes a difference to the younger generation when it 's made to make uh, a difference so education makes a huge is hugely impactful and um, For instance, Cambodia, young people really don't care about the Khmer Rouge any longer. The government doesn't see it as important enough to really highlight it, um, whereas in Indonesia it's still very important. And I think the digital space here provides a a really interesting field where also young people particularly can engage with with it in new ways.
2: Um, to continue with the the topic of the digital, I mean it's activism uh, and opportunities in in the digital world. But it also the digital world also provides the opportunity to create new memorials. So we have the archive as a memorial, for instance. We have. Um, in particular uh, during Corona, I only know about some German sites that they did, do now, um, um, Holocaust sites, are, uh, concentration camps, they now do digital tours through Buchenwald, for instance. Um, there are some projects um, of augmented reality, I don't know whether you know that, I'm not an expert, and you use your handy and then your mobile phone <coughs> and you see something that isn't really there, so you see the memorial somewhere that isn't really there. So the, the, the digital technology also allows to cr- uh, be creative when it comes to the memorial memorial sites themselves, and that I find really, really fascinating. And another answer to the Kuwaitis' memory study, um, and there it is fortunately already on its way, uh, which we can also see here at our conference, Um, it's the kind of post-colonial memory, Um, and I think the importance for me um, is that it's kind of a matter of positionality, it helps us to not only look at other people and how they remember, but also it brings it back home and it calls us into um, responsibility for crimes that we, as descendants of others, have committed in the past, and then we have to wonder, you know, what is, because memory is related to justice and we come from peace and transitional justice in our perspective, so what's what, forms of justice are necessary and appropriate um, when this memory um, of, of colonial, um, legacy of colonialism um, is brought to the table. So I find that really important as a social political talking point in Sweden, Germany, and the UK, which is where the
1: three of us are from. Sure. Uh, I also d- Can you see any new trends in this area? Yeah. If that would be one of them, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, can you say? Do you, do you see any new trends in memory politics?
3: Well, I thought the digitalization was a new trend. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs>
1: uh, maybe. Okay, and Tim, no examples there? No, okay. Yeah, I think these were our examples. Oh, that, that's examples. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that's actually uh, all of my questions. And now we're going to open up for uh, questions from the audience, if we have any. So please raise your hand. Uh, very good. And we have... Good we'll colleague here will help you. So keep your hand raised for a bit. And uh, it's good if you just uh, uh, present yourself with your name at least. Start here.
5: Hi everyone my name is Amal Boros and I have two questions actually uh, so um, you mentioned uh, that memory is uploaded to a transnational memory space, and I suppose that diasporas play a big role in 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 that uh, uploading in a sense of uh, memories so I'm just curious whether in um, your findings like whether, um, how does this affect the kind of memories that are produced or, I- or how they are iterated? Um, and then also, how does the interaction with the host countries of those diasporas affect the memories that are produced? And then my second question is connected to the last thing that you were mentioning about the future, and I, I guess um, uh, heritage is a really big part of post-conflict reconstruction, for example, but like, I was wondering uh, what role of um, does memory memory play in post-conflict reconstruction, and that would be it.
1: Should and we start with a diaspora question? Someone? Just, uh, Annika? Annika, or Tim, or Susanna?
3: Um, yes, so this is my the future research project. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that many real insights, but we've started to look at um, the Yazidi uh, memory activism, online, uh, or in the virtual space, in, in uh, the digital space. And here we find um, that the diaspora, of course, is quite influential in in both funding and also creating the opportunities for these type of um, existence of the memory space. Um, and uh, we found that uh, talking about the tours and so forth that uh, Susanna was bringing up, we looked at a virtual tour <coughs> where you could follow a Yazidi woman, or a Yazidi man, you can choose, and see how they experienced um, the intervention of of, um, ISIS in northern Iraq. Uh, And how, uh, and through this virtual tour, you could actually sort of feel the experience. Uh, And what is interesting with this is sort of the emotional impact that this type of um, memory activism wants to have on you, like how, and of course there is. It's become it becomes really powerful, and I think that is something that is really important, and that is catering not necessarily to the Yazidi community, but rather to a global community, to you know get um, recognition of the Yazidi genocide, for example, and for for the suffering of the Yazidi women and so forth. And we have Nadia Murad, for example, who's in. Brilliant spokesperson for the Yazidis. Uh, and I think this is uh, something that we'll, we'll see more of because it's, I mean, studies have shown that it's really powerful as a tool for mobilizing um, for a specific cause.
4: Um, I, I haven't done very much research at all on diaspora, but what I have um, sort of on the side noticed is that the diaspora can play a really important role in the sense that within more um, hegemonic uh, settings where there is an official narrative which is quite strongly policed, people in the diaspora are not subjected to that so strongly, um, at least. And so here, uh, this can also be seen as quite threatening, um, particularly when it's interlaced with, this, uh, with digital spaces. And so um, there's been quite a, um, a, a push I would say during commemoration events in Rwanda the last couple of years uh, that uh, to to think about what genocide denial in social media um, uh, means in YouTube channels uh, that are quite popular um, or in Facebook posts and so here the direct actions of people uh, in in the diaspora um, are, are seen as threatening to this to the peace uh, and security within uh, within the country. Um, What is framed as genocide denial? What is seen as legitimate speech and stuff? That's sort of a different issue. uh, And that's part of that political process. And I'm not going to go into that now, but I think the diasporic uh, element is quite key to that.
1: Um, yeah, yes. regarding
2: the heritage question, I'm not entirely sure if I understand it correctly. I'm just answering it in a way that I understand it and hope it's interesting for everybody. Um, so, if, if you think of heritage more related to the site, um, for instance, sites of atrocities, uh, there is a kind of whole um, branch in social science research around dark tourism um, of places of atrocities where people go to. And even though dark tourism sounds um, very cynical, um, when you've been to memorial sites and you were deeply moved and affected it probably had an, an impact on your normative agenda and you've learned something from it and you've taken something maybe about kind of the, the good or bad of the world with you, <coughs> um, on, an, on an ethical level um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of of visiting um, of memorial sites Tim and I actually had a little article on how they are being rated at trip advisor um, you know there's a whole industry behind that um, and it's also a tourist industry so there's money going as well'
1: uh, sorry was this a question about rebuilding
2: I wasn't quite sure well, how- sorry
1: Th- your second question was that about
2: uh, the role of memory the role post, of memory post
1: ro- in the also make use of it, from Oh, to rebuild societies. uh,
2: um, Yeah, I mean, uh, that's maybe the example that I had earlier of um, the martial art artists. You know, I mean, it's a question how can you construct inclusive sites? And in that regard, um, memorials are often... They try to serve. They seek to serve as places uh, that communicate a never again message. They they try to serve often as educative sites, so school classes can come and visit and they learn something about the past and are given also some kind of moral values in the process. Um, and there is a lot around that too, um, all over the world, I guess.
1: Yeah.
4: I yes, but I think it, what's really key to remember there is that what there are differing aims in rebuilding a society. And there are, are you prioritizing security and stability of a country? Are you uh, prioritizing reconciliation and good relations? And so on and so forth. And these, and heritage sites can um, provide, can l- lace into any of these aims. Um, and <coughs> from from the research I've been doing at Sleng Genocide um, Museum in Cambodia, you can see that the narratives that are portrayed there are very, helpful in um, forwarding, they, they, they strongly demonize the Khmer Rouge and bring everyone else together against them. And in the 1990s, there was a strong shift in how the narrative worked, and it basically means that everyone's a victim. And so it facilitates reconciliation excellently. What it doesn't do is any form of prevention, because it basically says there are an evil three or four people, they came, our society lost two million people. And there's no sense of um, what agency did anyone have in that. So yes, it forwards reconciliation, but it has no um, prevention effect. And I think that, that that's something which um, we need to also pay stronger attention to, that, be, that these aims aren't mutually exclusive, but they can be detractive to each other.
2: Yeah, just a very very short comment. I know there are some other questions in the room. Um, I listened to a, a radio program the other day about the concentration camp Buchenwald in Germany, and they're changing their memory culture towards um, the kind of the question of responsibility. Um, you know, how could this have happened in Germany? What does it say about a society, and what does it mean for today? So, and I think this is really where we want to get to: that we don't conserve the past in the past in form of a memorial. We know it's political and has an impact today but it's also about what other aspects can we learn for racism in society, for discrimination in society um, through these memorials. I think that's a brilliant term.
1: Right next question, Hans again. There maybe.
6: Thank you, Stockholm University. Um, I'm very grateful. I think it's a very nice topic and very nicely handled. But there is a sort of mirror thing with memory of the non-memory. The non-memory can uh, go under different labels. It could be forgetfulness, for example. So the topic question is about forgetfulness. And then I was thinking, Yes, the cases you have raised are within our generation, roughly, Rwandas and so on and so forth. So I jump back a little in time and take two juicy pieces where the decay curve has gone down and we will see if there is a recovery. Uh, Let's take the Westphalian peace treaty. 17th, mid 17th, I think it's 1648 or something like that. Uh, And uh, who is thinking about the peace treaty? We are thinking about the peace treaty after the Second World War and sort of what comes after that. But the Westphalian, and then comes a sort of shadow of a memory, a reconstructed memory, let's say in discourses of the EU. Sort of EU say we should be more Westphalian peace treaty oriented sort of arguments in the very contemporary discussion. So here it comes back; it sort of fades down. Fades. There could even uh, not even have a school uh, examination in the later part of the school system and saying sort of now expose something on what was the background for this and was it important or not. <laughs> I'd, didn't know, people would say, I guess. So here, Westphalian. Now, let's take another. The uh, process uh, against Galileo, the uh, the Catholic Church charging that uh, uh, you cannot see some planets or something like that just by pretending having a gadget uh, the, uh, with uh, the uh, looking at uh, some things. Who knows what is reality? And so in the end of the legal process, he is put to jail. So okay, so what is the memory of that? I mean it's a big catastrophe both for the legal entity, this case the Catholic Church, and also on the edge of the natural science in its fight. So if you say Galileo, like Galileo yeah, what, why, which guy is it? Is this a conflict? Is it a, what is it? Oh, it's a sort of central thing. And what is the memory of it? It's a sort of all these oldies. And that was pointing at a central thing in our civilization. So what about the forgetfulness and the returning <laughs> okay. to memory?
1: Re- re- profesor, the- re- Sorry. Uh, what you, sorry, it, any reflections? Just, uh, no, just uh, suggest maybe we can collect some questions and then. Oh, maybe. Yeah, no, I think this is good. Do, okay. you know, so reflection uh, on this.
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, I can't conflict, uh, reflect on these two cases, but I think what you um, what you pointed out with, uh, with regards to the Westphalian um, peace treaty is that um, when it deemed to be um, useful in the present, you know, it's been brought from the past. So when the EU say, let's act a little bit more according to the Westphalian peace treaty, then they hark back to a distant past in order to reach some objectives in the present. Um,
1: yeah. Sh- short, but yes. <laughs> have we, do we have any more questions? Please raise your hand again. Over there, then, in the gray shirt. Uh,
6: Good afternoon. I'm uh, Frederick Sansson from the Swedish Foundation for Human Rights, and coming from the human rights and transitional justice field, I
4: wanted to ask you how you see the role of uh, truth commissions and also of um, trials uh, in the form of special courts or on or, or na- or, or national ordinary courts for the creation of memory and memory sites and memory politics. Susanna, do you want to answer?
1: I'm um, very happy to answer. It's yes. a very
2: exciting um, question because um, we have here for our chief commissions or trials where particular discourses are established and they create a particular. Um, narrative about the violence that occurred. When we think of South Africa, for instance, due to also due to the um, involvement of the commissions, in particular Desmond Tutu, it was framed very much around the notion of reconciliation, for instance. Um, and so this creates a way of remembering the past. It creates a certain discourse how the past should be remembered, for instance. Um, Same with trials. And there is actually quite a bit of work now on kind of looking at the narratives of trials or truth commissions from that perspective and and, and to see what kind of truth they establish, use them as a kind of theater, the performance space in a sense. Um, Similar to say performance around a memorial as as, as moments and low keys where truth about the past is being created.
4: And at the same time, it it starts even though What is being tried? I mean, there's uh, what is being talked about at a truth commission. Who is then being charged? Uh, is it just the highest leaders? Is it a broad um, degree? And all these decisions are deeply political. And so the, the 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 success of transitional justice depends strongly on again what the what the aims are. And um, transitional justice, I, I, the the cases I I study, I'm. Quite critical of the transitional justice processes because they've been used in Cambodia, for instance, very strongly to adhere to the uh, the official narrative, and anything which would contradict that um, sort of goes unsettled. And it t- it can it, the sort of highlighting of uh, of certain events, and thus also the victimhood surrounding those events, also automatically takes away focus from other events and other victimhood uh, experiences and that can have impacts on how um, societies today can live together and what is recognized and what is not. Annika? Um,
3: (coughs) Yes, um, I think both the Truth Commissions and and, uh, these international tribunals, uh, they are important because they also help us not to forget certain things, and certain things are not silenced by bringing bringing them to court, for example. And I think one case that that Johanna and I have been studying is uh, on um, wartime rape, for example, that through the ICTY, the Yugoslavia Tribunal, and the Rwanda Tribunal, these crimes were actually (coughs) recognized as war crimes, and through these legal processes, they were acknowledged, they were not silenced, they were remembered. And also the, the legal consequences of it is that they are now inscribed into the Rome Statues. And I think that is really important that you now, today, can be on trial for um, wartime rape at the ICC. And I think this is one of the contributions of acknowledging crimes that are normally silenced. And I think these um, traditional, in a way, um, judicial procedures, really are important in that sense because they manage to capture something that is otherwise silenced. Um, and it helps us remembering these things. So I think this is important in, in, from a human rights perspective.
1: Right, have, I saw we had one more hand over there. Hopefully we have two minutes to, for each questionnaire. So we have to be quick.
6: Okay, I'm trying to be short. Uh, Lars is summer I'm a historian presently at the National Library of Sweden. I have two uh, simple and rather straightforward questions. The first one is, uh, how do you define the relation between memory studies, memory politics and other academic disciplines like, for example, history, anthropology and even political science? Uh, and the second question is: um, How would you, uh, how, what, what uh, role have you seen or would you like to see for memory institutions like museums, uh, archives, and libraries in the collection and creation uh, or even entanglement of, of uh, memories? Right.
1: Thank you. Who wants to start? Susanna? <coughs>
2: um, One one sentence answer to each question. Um, Definition, relation, memory studies to other disciplines. We work very interdisciplinarily. Um, That's very important to us. Uh, We have our background in political science, but I think we also try to use ethnographic methods more or less as much as we can, have a sociological viewpoint. We need to engage with law. So um, it's fairly broad. And regarding the, uh, my, it's almost like a closing question, what do I wish um, moral institutions to do? I think the example I just mentioned with Buchenwald is a very good one. I was quite, when I, when I heard this, I thought, yeah, this, this is what should happen. Um, use memory to make us think about our, us today and our responsibility and kind of get us to think about it rather than telling us what to think, right? Mobilize critical reflection and engagement um, socially.
1: Hanukkah. Yes. Do you want to go first? Go.
3: Um, no, I think um, from in a Swedish context, which is not something I normally study, but I was very inspired during my lunch conversation with one of my new colleagues here. Is that I think the uh, both textbooks as um, as an institute for memory uh, textbooks used in schools as well as museums uh, and. Uh, and other types of memorial institutions should be inclusive of also um, marginalised groups in, in Swedish society and make it help them, do a, give them a voice in a way or show their historical um, place in uh, Swedish history for example uh, and acknowledge many more of these sites I think would be important and I think that would be important for the future generations as well. So that's what I would like to see.
4: I, I, I couldn't agree more and I think highlighting the voids, highlighting the, the, the whispers and the marginalizations and where in archives there are no ar- archived old, no documents or material remnants to to then discuss that, to portray that and, exp- and sort of highlight why uh, over centuries for instance some things were recorded and other things were not. And I think there is, I mean there's a lot of um, important work to be done to sort of undercut official narratives even where the official narrative can be reconciliatory i think the critical reflection of that is really key
1: all right more questions then we have time uh here we go
7: yeah thank you very much this is so fascinating so thank you for your presentations uh, my name is Anna Åstod uh, from Uppsala University and I lead the Varieties of Peace network so uh, you have already alluded to this a bit about uh, the silences and so on but I I, w- I would like to hear more about the resistance to uh, memory politics because by, I mean, by definition, if it's politics, it means that it's mobilized, so it's often elite-driven. And I know that, I mean, for in South Africa, for instance, a lot of people are actually cannot take part of these memorial sites because it's too expensive, and so on, so, uh, and you talked also, also about the everyday, you mentioned the everyday uh, peace and so on, but how, uh, but how are like ordinary people brought into this?
3: Um, just briefly, I think um, memory politics is not only politics at the state level. I think there is a lot about micro-politics in memory politics as well, and here I think ordinary citizens or ordinary people have an, can have an impact. I mean, they can participate in commemorative events, in commemorations and so forth. They visit memorial sites, look at statues uh, and so forth, uh, go to museums. Um, and so I think there is uh, room for a number of voices actually in the memory scape if you're prepared to listen to them. And I can see that women organizations, they've been quite successful. Um, Look at the mothers of Srebrenica, for example, in Bosnia, how they are, you know, continuing lobbying for not forgetting Srebrenica and, and the genocide there. And so these are ordinary women. These are not politicians. They came together and created an organization and mobilized for remembrance. So I think memory politics is actually quite open to different types of politics if we prepare to look at micro-politics in the everyday.
4: Yes. <laughs>
3: yes. <laughs> Thank you, Tim.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I entirely it. agree with Annika. Um, I think that's a, that's a very valid point. I wonder whether you asked uh, resistance to Different memory narratives, or particular memory narratives, or uh, resistance to memory in and of itself. And I wonder, and that's a philosophical question. I'm not sure whether we can answer it here. Can you resist memory? Can you live in the like, like? Can you live in the present without a past? And obviously we don't because we're so much connected um, and rooted in our past in Europe at least. Um, yeah. So, like, maybe I just leave Tim. it open. We can t- take it to the left Yes, side.
4: <laughs> yes, but Tim, please. Okay, but I would, I would say yes. that there is some resistance in some of the cases we've been studying to, to memory and to remembering the past. And, can, uh, like I said earlier, Cambodian youths, They're not educated on the Khmer Rouge particularly, but they're also not interested. Um, Surveys that some colleagues of mine have done show that knowledge isn't high, but also interest is very low, even where there is some knowledge uh, on the past. And so I I think even uh, whether people are remembering uh, and engaging in these, no matter what sort of position or what interpretation of the past they have is contested. And here, I do. I think that it it's it goes way beyond the elite-driven um, uh, larger commemoration ceremonies, uh, what public holidays are instigating, and it's much more about uh, at the local level uh, what happens, what uh, what uh, civil society organisations are acting, uh, what Anika was was describing, and also spontaneous acts where new things happen. How the past is interlaced with that. Um, when, uh, when uh, new acts of violence happen, if hate crimes happen, um, the, the meanings that are given to that at uh, in, in spontaneous moments, I think is also quite sort of key to trying to understand the sort of the fabric of how memory uh, works today.
1: Yes, this is the last (laughs) comment, please. Yes,
3: and that connects also to forgetfulness because I think forgetting is a form of resistance to memory politics. And forgetting is also an active choice. It's an active act to forget. So in that sense, I think we're not just letting things fade away. Sometimes we actively forget things for various reasons.
1: Oh, and we will end on that note. So uh, Annika Björkdal, L- London University, Susanne buckley sister University of Marburg och Timothy Williams, University of Bundeswehr, Munich. Thank you so much. And uh, now, guys, you can get some coffee and stretch your legs. And I hope uh, we, you'll be back here quarter past three, I think. Yes. And then I will have a new panel uh, and talk about what's happening in Ukraine and the memory politics around the war.